Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. Hey, Tara. How's it going? It's good. It's good. I'm excited for our guest today. Can you tell me a little bit about her? Uh, well, you know what? I will let her introduce herself maybe because I do not want to uh, speak for anyone. But today I'm very excited because we have Dr. Roberta Lexier on the podcast And I reached out because for several years, I've been a little bit upset with the history of the feminist movement and with um, kind of the exclusion of non-white ladies and, uh, you know, all of that kind of thing. And then when, uh, when I was speaking with Michelle a little while ago, we talked about the birth alerts. And I thought that uh, Dr. Lexier would have some really good information for us about the history of these kind of movements. So yeah, welcome, uh, Roberta. And would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, sure. Thanks. Uh, first, thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be here and really happy you reached out to uh, to me to do this. Um, so as Tara said, I'm Roberta Lexier. I'm an associate professor at Mount Royal University. And my area of expertise is really around social movements and left politics. So I've done work on student movements, uh, women's movements, environmental movements. I do some work on the NDP and kind of left um parliamentary politics and that side but I'm so excited to be here to talk about this stuff because I've been dying for years to have somebody really want to talk about reproductive justice and so I'm really excited to do it and yay (laughs) thanks ladies awesome yeah anytime um so yeah so something that had bothered me when I was uh learning about past feminist history and everything like that was the reproductive justice movement here in Canada. So I read about the abortion caravan and, you know, I know the personal benefits that I have had and other white ladies have had with access to contraception, access to abortion, meaning we're able to finish high school, we're able to go to university, we're able to not have any children, um, stop having children when we're done, have them later in life, have a career, all those great things that have allowed us to accumulate some wealth. Um, and also, you know, owning or getting our own bank accounts and stuff like that in 1964 in and around uh, a similar decade um, has allowed us to start inheriting wealth. But I'm now also familiar with, you know, the discovery of now these 5,000 children in residential schools, that this is not the same for Indigenous ladies. And at the same time, we were having the abortion caravan. I think it was around the same time that there was forced sterilization of indigenous women. Um, We had the birth alerts that we talked with Michelle about, and now we have the foster care system that's not really being discussed, even though it's publicly funded. So yeah, this is a a ladies in finance podcast, but I think this this is something we really need to talk about when we're talking about, um, you know, full and complete emancipation of women and where is our, public money going and you know why are certain women still being left behind so Roberta feel free to to jump in with some of your thoughts I guess I mean my major question is why did we have an abortion caravan but we didn't have a similar movement to end the forced sterilization of indigenous ladies like I just I'm so perplexed by this yeah I mean I think 
both movements were happening in certain ways, um, but you're absolutely right that white women, white middle class women in particular, have dominated the the women's movement for really the past hundred years or so. The f- we talk about feminism in these waves, which is so incredibly problematic because it assumes it disappears, but we keep doing it anyway. And so I'll I'll kind of use not quite the waves, but but a similar idea that you know in the in the early years of the women's movement it was about the right to vote and and gaining access to property rights and um, and really the the kind of struggles of upper and middle class white women in Canada um, who could have access to these things and um, there's a lot of uh, great history work that's been done Sarah Carter in particular has written a book about how the early feminist movement especially in the prairies but elsewhere was very racist and very much about protecting this white settler colonial nation that we had um, established here on in what's now Canada. And so right from the beginning, it's kind of baked into the women's movement that there's um, a separation and that not all women share the same issues and share the same concerns that, in fact, women are divided very importantly around race, around class, around sexual orientation, um, all sorts of different things actually divide women more than bring women together. And so, um, you know, it's it's really a very much a, a upper middle class white dominated movement for for a long time until really recently. And we're just now starting to deal with some of those issues. Now, that said, I mean, I think the abortion caravan was an incredibly important moment in Canadian history and really did transform our politics and our, our way of understanding the world. And so, you know, it's important to, to look at that history, but also to understand its limitations and, and who was left out of that conversation. Um, and when we're talking about reproductive justice, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, um, in the present as well, that access is really problematic and it's incredibly limited. Um, and so it is still really about race and about class, um, about sexual orientation. You know, we're using even women in here, which might be kind of problematic. We should probably talk about people who can have abortions. Um, you know, there's all these things that divide us and it becomes really difficult. And so, as I said, I think it's really good to understand the, the um, progress that's been made, but also those limitations. And I'm so glad that, you know, women of your generation are recognizing those and seeing like, wait, we've got a lot more work to do here than, than what's been done. So let's let's pause for a second um, and and go back to a point that was brought up for those people that maybe weren't aware or have heard of the term but have not researched it. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about what this abortion caravan is? Yes, and this is what I'm so excited about because it's really tricky to talk about abortion. I mean, it's a really difficult subject, I think, in general to talk about. Um, But as historians, you know, most people don't really want to talk about this history for all sorts of reasons. Um, But I think it's important to start with where we were before the abortion caravan, which takes place in 1970. So we're just over 50 years ago now that this this happened. So before the 1960s, it was illegal in Canada to distribute information about birth control, to prescribe birth control to an unmarried woman, or to perform an abortion. So statutes enacted in the 19th century criminalized the procurement of abortion, and it was penalized by life imprisonment for both the doctor and the woman obtaining the abortion. Now, provisions made by kind of the mid-1800s allow for abortions in cases of, quote, medical necessity, but this is really difficult to determine, and it's really done on a case-by-case basis by the doctors in local communities. So you can imagine how difficult it is to access abortion, even in a medical necessity. Now, I think like you, I'm sure, and many of your listeners know, you know, people are going to get abortions regardless of what the law is. I think this is an important point to make. Whether you make abortion legal or illegal, people are going to access abortions. Abortions are safe and simple medical procedures. Um, They are very, very quick. Um, And in fact, the number of unwanted pregnancies and abortions drop when there's access to good education, healthcare, social programs, economic supports, all the kinds of things people need to make good choices and have access to contraception. 
restricting access to abortion only makes the procedure more difficult and more dangerous. People are still going to do it. It's just going to lead to more deaths. And so this was the concern raised by women and others and their allies during the, the period of the 1960s and the movements that were happening. So in 1968, 1969, um, Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, um, leads this crusade to amend the criminal code. Um, his famous quote is that the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. Um, it's this very famous quote that, you know, the government has a role to play, but not in our personal lives. So they do all sorts of things like um, modernizing statutes related to divorce, homosexuality, um, other issues are kind of in this omnibus bill. Um, and we should recognize there were some limits to it, but it did make some big changes. Now, in terms of abortion, what it did is that it said that women, um, it, they're using the term women, I'm going to use people generally, but they use the term women in those days. Um, they could get an abortion at a, at a qualified hospital but they could only do so if they were approved by what was called a therapeutic abortion committee. So this was made up of three doctors at this time. Remember, late 1960s, they'd both mostly be men. Um, and these men would get together and they'd look over your case file and decide whether you should get an abortion or not. And basically, the idea was only if it threatened your health could you be allowed. Now, even then, doctors often wouldn't give access to an abortion, they wouldn't approve this. Um, and studies done at the time, women would kind of go in and test these um, therape therapeutic abortion committees. And they found that 19 out of 20 women were being denied abortions through this process. So this criminal code change in 1968-69 is supposed to open up this abortion issue, um, give women access, but really it's not. It's like, here's new gatekeepers, these three men have to decide. And think about the time that takes you know you're pregnant you might not find out right away then you're waiting on these doctors by the time you might find out it's too late so the women's movements emerging at this time reproductive rights are a huge issue for women because as Tara mentioned in the opening um, these are big issues around education employment um, earning potential um, freedom of choice all these issues and so abortion becomes a huge issue for the women's movement and a group of women in Vancouver organized what's called the abortion caravan in 1970. It starts with 17 women on the coast. And what they did is they had two vehicles, one with a black coffin um, attached to the top of it to represent all the women who died every year from illegal back alley abortions. Because again, people are gonna get abortions whether they're legal or not. And if they're not legal and accessible, they're gonna go to back alleys and they're gonna use hangers and other sorts of horrifying things. So they put this coffin on the top of one car and then they have another car and they drive from Vancouver. They stop in various cities, Calgary, Regina, Winnipeg. They collect people as they go and eventually they get to Ottawa where about 400 people marched to Parliament and demanded to meet with Pierre Trudeau, who by that point is the Prime Minister. No one met with them, and so they decided that they would take this coffin that they'd carried and they would drop it off at the Prime Minister's house at 24 Sussex. And so they, they go over there, drop this coffin literally on his front step. There's all these women on the front lawn of the Prime Minister's house. No security. They don't know what to do with these women because they're women. They're not supposed to be a threat. There's these young women. What do we do with them? And so they have this big rally. Nobody will meet with them. So the two days later, they decide to go to question period at Parliament. And they have to do all sorts of things, like pretend that they're very um, elegant ladies. So they pool their resources. They look around. They borrow pantyhose so that they can make sure that they're well-dressed and they don't look like hooligans. And they sneak in, or they go into question period, but they sneak in their purses a bunch of chains and they chain themselves to the chairs in Parliament, up in the top of Parliament, and they start screaming their demands for abortion on demand. Um, and they shut down the House of Commons for the first and only time ever in Canadian history. It has never been shut down before 
or since. Now, the chaining themselves to the chairs was a, a nod to the British suffragettes who used similar strategies when they were trying to get the right to vote um, back in the early 1900s. Um, and as I said, they tried to come off as sort of these elegant ladies so that they can kind of sneak in to be able to, to do this. And then they just used this guerrilla theater to, to kind of throw it open. Now, it didn't really do much in some ways other than raise awareness about the abortion issue and eventually things would change and we can we can chat about how that happened. But this abortion caravan was such a fantastic example of of this kind of weird group that comes together, builds this movement um, and they kind of sneak through because of the expectations around their gender and around their activism and the cops, the RCMP security, the pr prime minister, they didn't know what to do with these women. And they were like, "How do? We, what do we do? Who are they?" Um, and so it was an incredible um, point, I think, about um, what happens when abortions are illegal, um, and what's going to happen to women who don't have access to these to these medical procedures. So basically, the men underestimated the women. Is the Cole's notes of that whole thing, and then the women just like fucked shit up. Pretty much, and that's kind of true in lots of cases, isn't it? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so cool. Um, one of the things that really drew me to that like moment in time was the drama as well. Like it was so dramatic, and I absolutely loved that. And I thought this must have had some sort of like impact at the time. Um, but it still brought me back to the question. Like, yes, we were losing women to, well, people, we were losing people to back alley abortions, but we were also at the same time through government programs, restricting other women's ability to have children. Um, so like the white supremacy is just like, it's, it's, it's so outstanding to me that it, that it must have been clear at the time to someone and there was no drama or passion or anything like that for these other folks that wanted to have kids that didn't want to have um, their tubes tied and all that stuff. So what you're saying, Tara, is if I'm summarizing, if you were a white person that could have children, you were not allowed to get I don't want to say get rid, but have an abortion, choose not to have that um, or take that fetus or blastocyte or whatever we want to call it at the stage of the abortion to term. But if you were a person that was not white, we didn't want you to have kids. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely what's happening. The, the colonial... Um, the colonial project that is Canada is operating through all of this, right? It's about who is supposed to have children, who's supposed to populate the planet, um, uh, in our case, our area of the planet. And it was very clear very early who that meant in Canada and who that didn't mean. Um, you know, Indigenous women um, were sterilized up until 1976 um, in this province in Alberta. Um, and in fact, we now have evidence that it's still been happening. Um, and, you know, it's it's it is very ironic in some ways that on the one hand, um, white women um, are fighting for the right to be able to um, not have children and um, indigenous women and others um, can't like need to fight for the right to be able to have children. And I think um, part of it is the the blindness of the time that there really was this um, this separation that is inexcusable. I think, you know, the women then um, now admit that they did have huge blind spots that they should have seen and that they should have participated in this. Um, but I also think, you know, at the same time, to give them a little bit of credit that they um, were fighting an enormous battle um, for themselves as well that I think they you know because of their their privilege and their position at the time and their kind of unquestioning um, power in society there wasn't that 
that questioning of whether what they were trying to accomplish would help everybody. There was an assumption that their concerns were the same concerns that all women shared. So the fact that they didn't have access to abortion, they assumed that this was an issue for all women. Um, and in fact, it is in many cases, um, even for indigenous women or indigenous people, um, you know, the right to choose is an incredibly important option to have. Um, and, um, you know, it comes into conflict with this other um, piece of history that's happening at the same time of this forced sterilization. And, um, you know, I think um, the the women who were involved in the abortion caravan, um, I, you know, I've talked to many of them since and they do say, you know, we definitely were missing some really important pieces here. Um, but at the same time, they were challenging such a taboo subject. And they, I think, legitimately thought it would be helpful for all women to have access to th these same rights that they were pushing for. You know, I think they were partly right and partly wrong um, and that they they definitely missed a lot. Now, the bigger question is why have we still not gotten there? Because I think in some ways it's fair enough in the early 1970s that these women were really fighting for the first steps towards what we now take for granted all the time, you know, access to education, access to birth control and the right to family planning, um, the right to divorce. You know, women didn't even have the right to have credit cards and loans. Um, you know that better than, than many people. Um, you know, so this is a huge fight that's happening at this time. And so, um, you know, it's, it's fair enough to say that there were pieces missing, but I think also we should recognize that they were taking on a huge and hugely taboo topic that that nobody wanted to talk about, um, and I think um, it's it, it's really valuable. Now we need to make sure that we're challenging that and saying, okay, who was left out, and where are we still missing, and where are women's experiences different? Um, because you know we make up more than half the population. There's no way we share all the same experiences, and we need to acknowledge that and and be more conscious of it. Well, what really pisses me off is it's been 50 years and like, I don't think we're still fighting the same fight, but like, there are still people that are talking about like abortion shouldn't be a thing. And the fact that, you know, menstrual products are not available for, for free in, in public restrooms or birth control is not available for free either. Like when you look at the price of, let's say a condom versus birth control that you have to take every day. Like it just, it makes me so mad that after 50 years, you know, these women marched across Canada and we're still dealing with this shit. Yeah. I mean, this is the, this is to me, the, the biggest problem is that we assume that this problem is solved, um, that we have, um, all the rights that we need and that we've addressed the issue. Um, but you know, Janine, you mentioned a whole bunch of things, pink tax stuff that you obviously named your podcast after, <laughs> yeah. um, which are horrifying. You know, I don't need to pay double for a razor. Thank you very much. Cause it's pink. Um, but there's all sorts of these issues that that are part of this. And, you know, abortion and birth control are a big part of it. So if I think about my experience um, in the world dealing with the abortion issue, I would sort of assume, I think, that there's a very large proportion of people who are anti-abortion that are very opposed to this issue. Um, I've been on university campuses for 25 years and there is nothing more horrifying than the weekly displays we get of aborted fetuses up and down the hallways of these groups that are trying to convince people that abortion's wrong. But the interesting thing is, is that a 2020 poll, so this is just last year, showed that 70% of Canadians are supportive of abortion rights and only 10% are opposed completely. Now, the ones I thought were more interesting was 10% had no opinion and 10% didn't care, which I found really interesting because, I mean, I'm guessing those are men mostly <laughs> who just don't think about these issues. Um, but it's, you know, the, the image is actually quite different than the reality. Most Canadians are quite supportive of abortion rights um, and access. The reality is different, though, because access isn't actually equitable across the country. Um, it's very difficult to get an abortion on the East Coast in particular. Um, if you live in PEI, you have um, one option in Summerside, or you have to go to New Brunswick or Nova Scotia and pay for your own travel costs. Um, New Brunswick, 
Brunswick doesn't fund abortions outside of hospitals, so any private clinics um, cannot um, offer abortions covered by um, healthcare dollars. Um, and so this makes it really difficult for people to access access these services. And I was going to say, even here in Alberta, like um, my cousin lives in Red Deer and we were talking about the COVID vaccines and like not the same thing at all, but just even the access her grandparents live in like quite a rural setting. So not in like Red Deer proper. And they had quite a time, they're over 80, they had quite a time just even getting access to the vaccine. So I can't imagine what it would be like for a rural Albertan um, to, to have access to abortion as, as well. And, and that's in a province where we have, you know, many areas where we can go and get an abortion. Absolutely. So first you need to find a doctor who's not going to be a total asshole and basically tell you you have no options, or you end up at one of those pregnancy clinics who basically say the same thing, that you have no options, and shame you and make you feel like garbage for accidentally getting pregnant, which many, many, many people do. Um, It's very easy to do. Um, So you're going through that stress, and then you have to try and find a place to actually get an abortion, which may not be easy. Um, Rural hospitals often don't have a doctor that will perform the procedures. Um, Also, you might run into people you know. There's shame associated with this. I mean, there's all sorts of issues that go into this. Um, And it it is really problematic. And it becomes an issue of access around rural communities, as you said. Um, Also, it becomes a cost issue for many people. Um, Private clinics are very accessible if you have a few hundred dollars and can can use those clinics. um, you know, it's a, it's a really tricky situation. And, and even if you can get access to these clinics, you're then faced with protesters and other sorts of shaming processes. Um, you know, in Alberta, they did pass the buffer law when the NDP was in power. Um, but there's still efforts to, to kind of diminish people's access, even when it is accessible through the healthcare system. So, um, you know, it's not like we can just easily do whatever we want. There's still really strict limits on abortion in this country. Totally. And I think as communities, you know, there should be, you know, more access to things like nurse practitioners who can definitely provide the abortion pill. Um, Just because in many rural settings, there isn't even a doctor on for the full week, like they might come in for one or two days, because that's all they can afford to get a doctor in for. And if you're working an hourly job, on those days, like this can be almost impossible or seem so insane to even just get like a a birth control prescription, let alone an abortion. Yeah. And you have to think about how time sensitive all of this is too, right? It's not like you can just put it off, you know, it's like, oh, we'll figure it out later. It's like, no. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, is this notion that you know, a woman wakes up when she's, you know, eight and a half months pregnant and decides she doesn't want the baby anymore. So, you know, they're going to, I mean, Donald Trump really effed this up, but like, you know, they're going to rip the the live baby out of her body and just kill it. Like that's what abortions are. And like, again, I'm, I'm not an expert in this field, but I would venture to guess that like most abortions probably happen like before, obviously the, the baby is viable. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is that late term abortions are unbelievably rare, like unbelievably rare and only ever happen if it's a life or death situation for the mother. Um, It is literally not something that happens. You don't go into an abortion clinic for an abortion on demand at eight and a half months. It's impossible. Um, In fact, after nine weeks, it can be very difficult to get an abortion. Um, Usually 12 weeks is kind of the limit, Um, but the vast majority take place 12 weeks weeks or younger. Um, And that is very, very early in a pregnancy. Many women, many people don't know that they're pregnant um, until around that time anyway. Um, And this is why it can be so tricky because there's a real time sensitive nature. I mean, things are different now. It's easier now. We have fast um, pregnancy tests. We do have, um, you know, the, the plan B pills and we have other sorts of options, but it's still incredibly difficult to manage this in a very quick time 
time with all the stress and the anxiety of a really big life choice that people are making. And then to throw like a policy blockade in front of people like, oh, you can't get one in this hospital, but maybe in this other hospital, you're just increasing the likelihood of people, um, you know, going into crisis and, and having real problems. Well, if you're a person with an irregular period, like two, not having your period for two months is normal, right? Like it's okay. And, and then you find out you're three months pregnant. Like this is, I don't know, this really pisses me off. I was just going to bring up, we saw it recently, how little leverage we have um, in terms of policy or what is um, baked in at the federal level to prevent or to protect rather these reproductive rights because the only thing we really can do if say New Brunswick doesn't allow uh, acceptable universal access to abortion or any other healthcare service is to then withhold funding. So we've basically said, and I'm just looking at this as a lay person, I look at it like we've said, we will fund healthcare, but if the provinces don't follow through and provide that healthcare, we will just remove funding, which doesn't that mean more people die? Like, I'm totally confused. Yeah, I mean, this is the the huge problem with the situation that we have in Canada in that um, when the abortion laws were eventually changed, what actually happened was just the elimination of abortion laws completely. So the, the way the abortion situation in Canada was resolved is that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was passed in 1982, and women started to use the Charter of Rights and Freedoms um, to challenge that abortion law that required, required that therapeutic abortion committee. And so using Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, you may have probably heard his name, um, he was kind of the main um, person, the kind of headliner of these, these cases. But basically what they argued was that um, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms protects, quote, um, the security of person and the control of our own bodies. So the Charter gives us that right. And people involved in the abortion movements um, were arguing that um, eliminating or limiting the abortion rights of women put our, our bodies and our security at risk. And that was accepted by the Supreme Court. Um, and basically what the government did is that they just said, okay, the current law doesn't work. We just will take the law out entirely. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a great thing, right? Now you don't need therapeutic abortion committees. Women can get abortion on demand. But the fact that there's no law on the books in Canada means that there's really no recourse in any way to make sure that provinces are upholding their responsibility to provide access. The only way to do it is through the Canada Health Act, which is only really a funding mechanism. And so the because it's not a law, there's no law that says, abortions must be provided in Canada for, you know, access, they must be accessible for people in Canada. If that law was on the books, then the government would have to make sure that the provinces were upholding their responsibilities and there'd be a recourse for that. But the only recourse is this Canada Health Act, and it's so limited because, as you said, what did they withhold funding? Well, great. Now there's less money for health care in general. I mean, it doesn't get targeted just to that one thing. Um, but we don't have a law on the books. And so there's actually a movement. It's, you know, and it's an interesting thing. Uh, there's a movement now to or there has been for decades to get a law on the books that says that, you know, abortion isn't just available, but that it has to be made available because otherwise people's right to life and security of person are being infringed upon. Um, and so it's it's this weird kind of paradox in some ways of like, yay, we got rid of a law that was really crappy, but because we don't have anything to replace it, there's no recourse to make sure that people are getting accessible and affordable access to a, basically a very simple medical procedure that it takes no time at all um, and would be easy for any hospital to, to offer. So two things there. One, I was recently at um, one of the protests here in Calgary for, you know, bringing back the testing, tracing and isolating um, led by Dr. Vipond. 
And there was um, that the anti-protesters on the loudspeaker, men, I'm assuming white men, um, yelling, um, you know, my body, my choice in terms of wearing a mask, which I think is hilariously ironic when you say things like that. And then like, how do these people not extend that? Or I guess they just probably don't want to, they want to control women to a woman's choice to what, you know, take a pregnancy to term. Yeah, I mean, this was my favorite part. And by favorite, I'm being very sarcastic of these, um, you know, anti-mask protesters or whatever they are nowadays. I don't know because we have no regulations, so I don't know what they're protesting, but whatever. It doesn't matter. But they have all these signs that are like my body, my rights, um, you know, hands off my body or my body, my choice. And these are phrases and, and you know, um, slogans that have been used by the women's movement for decades about our personal bodily autonomy um, and for them to be used by people who mean the exact opposite I think is very telling in so many ways because um, what they're saying is that it's not actually about bodily autonomy in any way as you said Janine it's about controlling women and it's about making sure um, that the limits are in place that men want to be in place on women's lives and um, you know it's it's an interesting thing that I would be you know, I'd be fascinated to see a study, I could guess, but it would be anecdotal, of how many of those anti-maskers or anti-vaxxers or pro-lifers, which I find so ironic in so many ways. I mean, it's, it's the same problem with the pro-lifers who really don't care at all what happens to a child after it's born um you know their main, pr- oh, their main yeah. priority is getting children to term but don't they even don't get me seem to care <laughs> about what happens afterwards um and so we end up in cycles and we end up with all sorts of issues right and so it's it's that same irony of like you're going to use that same phrase that's about my bodily choices to justify basically killing other people um like no, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, well, but that's and, not going to fly. Like, okay, it's where, like, you know, where are you taking on foster children or, um, you know, donating to orphanages or, or whatever to raise these children that parents can't support? Because, um, you know, I was pulling up some statistics before this and um, one of the statistics, it's from the U.S., but I'm, I would argue it probably extends to Canada as well. But three out of four women that are seeking abortion are low income. So, when people say like, don't have kids if you can't afford them, you can't say that and then not give, you know, access to this service. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing is that we see that um, demand for abortion goes way down, as I said earlier, when we have access to good supports. Um, that, you know, a lot of the reasons people might choose to end a pregnancy have to do with financial realities, have to do with their living circumstances, their job, their other sorts of realities. Um, and if we can eliminate a lot of those through social programs, through social supports, through, um, you know, lowering our income inequality in this country, if we can deal with a lot of those things, the demand for abortion goes down. And in fact, having access to good quality public health care makes abortion rates drop also because people have access to things like birth control, but also they have access to things like pediatricians and good quality obstetricians that, you know, imagine it in the U.S. where you're thinking about having a baby or you're pregnant. Let's say you got pregnant accidentally. You get maximum six weeks of maternity leave off. And then somehow you have to afford to raise this child and take it to a doctor with no income, no health insurance. Um, And so, you know, the more supports we can provide for people, the less likely they are actually to end up needing an abortion. Um, And so, you know, people complain about permissive societies that allow abortion. But when you support with other sorts of income income supports and um, health care and education and other things those demands for abortion actually go way down. Yeah, and I just wanted to maybe get your opinion or, um, I don't know, maybe some advice of how we can 
not uh, go down the same path of excluding, uh, you know, non-white people from these kind of movements. Because I do have concerns about the latest protests in regards to the the test trace isolate. Um, and I'm going to share something, and I promise I'm going to get to my point. But I was chatting with someone recently about breastfeeding, and they said, you know, back in the day when, uh, you know, kind of the, the Leche League started and breast is best and all that kind of stuff, they said it was seen as um, elitist. And yeah, I mean, it's not the stay-at-home mom's fault that the only people that can afford to breastfeed are stay-at-home moms. But I did kind of get an inkling of if you're not staying at home and using that ability to breastfeed your child because you know it's the preferred um, nutritional method for babies, but at the same time, you're not doing anything about six-week maternity leave unpaid, that is elitist. And that, that, that does, you know, um, extend these problems into the next generation. And I wonder what we're doing with the current protests we see, where we also see that you know, we didn't see the same support for Black Lives Matter. We don't see the same support for the people a few blocks down um, in the city of Calgary right now um, protesting in regards to police brutality. And I didn't see any outrage even on Twitter about the recent um, decision in regards to uh, the Youngman case and somebody getting manslaughter instead of murder, in my opinion, just because it was an Indigenous boy. So I was wondering, what could we do when we're participating in these movements that affect us to not just center white people anymore? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a tricky question in so many ways of, of how do we break down centuries of white supremacy in our society? I mean, I think my my philosophy is that the key ingredient is that we are conscious of and listen to and um, really respectful of the different opinions and different um, lived experiences that are being brought into these um, discussions and that we really do create space for people to be able to express their their different their different issues so for instance you know there's a lot of debate about vaccine passports and I don't know that that's an issue we should open up necessarily on this podcast it's a whole other shit storm you know we can get into um, but you know one of the the pieces of this that makes me a bit uncomfortable is that there are um, you know people of color who have been victimized by the medical system for centuries who have a quite I think legitimate hesitancy to trust um, you know medical professionals or scientists shoving things into their bodies and I think that that is legitimate and I think that that's something we need to to listen to because I think you know the science tells us that testing tracing and isolating is incredibly important if we're going to get through this stupid pandemic and just throwing up our hands and saying ah well we're done with it is clearly not the right answer and a lot of bad things are about to happen in this province but I think that the the important part then is to to really provide that space to say okay this is my assumption that I'm making and where am I wrong and where am I missing pieces and how can I think about other people's experiences differently so that I can think in my life a vaccine passport would be perfectly wonderful I think it would be great to know that everywhere I am there's vaccinated people and that I'm safe and I think it's our social responsibility to get vaccinated but I also as I said think it's really important that we're aware of these past practices. Um, this, you know, you brought up right away the sterilization issue. I mean, if you're an indigenous woman who's been forcibly sterilized by the the medical profession, by the Canadian state, how likely are you to trust a, a doctor telling you that this is a procedure that you should do? I mean, it's it's a fair and legitimate concern. Um, and so I think what we have to do is find ways to balance those issues and make sure that we're conscious of and listening to them while at the same time trying to make sure that our society's safe and that we're, we're moving forward in the best way for all of us. Well, and one thing Tara brought up a couple episodes ago that I was unaware of was... Um, in, I think it was in foster care, there were um, indigenous children that were being raped 
And the solution to that was to put IUDs in 10 year old girls, um, which is horrifying. But if that's your experience with the system, whether that be the foster care system, the healthcare system, whatever, how do you grow up and trust that? Because I don't think I would if that thing, I've never had an IUD, but from everyone I've talked to that's had one, and I know quite a few people that have, it's not the most comfortable thing in the world. Um, and then like, what, like, have we studied what the long-term effects of a 10 year old having something like that is? Cause I don't think we have. Well, just and even, I mean, verdict. oh, sorry, go. No, I was just going to say, even if they, I mean, mine's fine. It's comfortable as hell. It doesn't bother me, but that doesn't matter. It's done without somebody's consent and nobody at 10 years old should have that forced upon them. Like that's, that's the reality of it. And so I think the point is, is that the system is broken in so many ways, right? Like we can't solve it in these, you know, hour that we're going to chat today because these are really intense, complex problems that really go right to the root of this country and right to the root of who we are as communities. And so there's a lot to struggle with. And the important part, I think, in my opinion, is to struggle with it, is to keep bringing it up, is to have these episodes where, you know, when we're talking about reproductive justice to talk about, well, you know, what about the other side of it that we don't hear about, the sterilizations and the other issues? Um, Because these are um, this is history that's been ignored and and rewritten so many times. And, um, you know, it's it's really important to be conscious of it, to then be able to figure out how to move forward with whatever we're going to do, um, whether that's vaccinations or reproductive justice. Because my argument is that the the same the same point holds for both abortion and for forced sterilization, which is that we should have control over our own bodies. Whatever that decision is, whether it's to abort a a pregnancy or to have a pregnancy and carry it to full term or whatever it is with your body, you know, people should have the right to make that choice. And I think the issue is the same and needs to be understood the same. Um, But we also have to understand the different experiences that lead us to having different intersections with that issue. Well, and it's super interesting that at the the crux of it, it both sides of the spectrum, you know, whether you're being forcibly sterilized or whether you're being told you have to carry a pregnancy to term, it's the same like root issue, but because they're on different sides of the spectrum, different people, um, experience it differently. Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to jump in there with the, uh, IUD versus, uh, and and like bringing it back to abortion is apparently, uh, an IUD insertion and an abortion feel very similar. The thing that I was going, that I'm just thinking about now from what Roberta had said is, um, with the, the test trace isolate, I think I heard, uh, when the pandemic started, you know, paid sick days, safe workplaces. I'm upset that these protests have come now and that when I look out into them, I see folks that maybe have been able to work from home. I see folks that have been able to get their groceries delivered and have relied on Amazon. I don't see the same people that perhaps worked at Cargill and still had to send their children to public schools. And I'm concerned about that. And I guess Yeah, I I don't know. I think it's great that we still have the conversation, but I'm wondering if should we test, trace, isolate, paid sick days, safe workplaces, you know, we don't need everything all at once. We can all sacrifice a little bit so that like, just because someone who doesn't look like me might get sick, that maybe no one gets sick. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, get get me started on the pandemic. I mean, at the beginning of this, I'd really hoped I was um, oddly optimistic that this might help us realize all the massive social, economic and political problems that we have in our society, which it did. And then I hoped that at some point we might fix them because they were exposed. And unfortunately, um, we haven't really done that. And I mean, I don't know... um, 
how much you want me to to talk about why I'm a socialist and why I think the actual solution to this is to get rid of capitalism. This may not be the place for that, but I think no, no, this know, is the place for that. <laughs> <laughs> because I think you know, so many of these issues do come down to that core problem in our society, which is that we're rooted in a an economic system that's based on exploitation. So I think you know, the reality is is that what our society needs is for every single human being to have access to the basic necessities of food, shelter, clothing, clean water, um, and healthy environment. Um, And the rest is ridiculous. Anything else that we're adding to that is bonus for us to be and explore our best creative, our creativity and our best humanity. Um, and the, the, the fact that we go the opposite way and we've done everything possible as a society to protect um, the people making the most money in the system, um, the most exploitive workplaces, and really to protect the capitalist system in general um, is really, to me, traumatizing that we didn't learn anything coming out of this. Um, that said, I think, you know, I I'm older than you. I've been around a while and I've seen a huge shift, I'd say in the past maybe 10 to 15 years where, um, you know, 10 years ago, it'd be hard for me to say on a podcast that I was a socialist. And now it's part of the conversation that people are saying like, wait a minute, is this actually benefiting me in any way? Were any of the promises that were made to me going to be fulfilled? And I think, you know, as millennials or as people younger than me, all the promises you were made have all been a lie. I mean, you're never going to own a home. You're probably never going to get the retirement that you thought you were going to get. You're never going to get to travel and do all the fun things or whatever. You have to slave away at some job or more importantly, you have to work a gig job that's going to really limit your options in other ways. And so, I mean, I think the reality, like the answer is that the whole system is what the problem is. And we can say test, trace, and isolate to kind of hold off this wave of a pandemic, but it's not going to solve the core problems, which are that we value money and profit more than we value human life. And until we change that, we're we're kind of stuck in this, I think. And, and what I would like to see is those kind of events start with something like test, trace, and isolate, because if we don't, we're going to die. But like you said, push to the next level, which is, okay, to isolate, that means paid sick days. And to have healthy environments, that means we make sure kids have access to proper education that doesn't depend on your economic system and your access to charter schools. Um, you know, I mean, we, we're we just doing everything backwards, I guess, is my point. And I guess my I agree that we need to push these issues further. And in particular around class and race, where, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are being left out. And most of them are foreign workers, people of color, um, recent immigrants, um, women as well, um, that are just not being included in this system and that can't continue because humanity is the important part here. I'm like, what's a pension? Like what's retirement? Like, not, <laughs> I, know, right? I don't know her. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, even, to... I grew up, I mean, I grew up in the mid nineties thinking like, Oh yeah, the Canadian pension plan will be all spent by the time I'm, I retire. And like, that was for sure going to happen. And then you guys are even farther behind. <laughs> like That's yeah, it's bad. And I, I, yeah, I hate when people say millennials are lazy and useless or whatever, all the criticism you guys all get. Cause it's ridiculous. I mean, the world you've inherited is terrible and terrifying and right. really, really <laughs> hard like, to deal with. <laughs> this is like a total shameless plug, but when it comes out, y'all have to listen to my Ted talk. Cause this is exactly what it was on. Um, Going back to, though, putting humanity first, I'm curious, Roberta, if you have any examples um, of societies or places in the world that you think are doing a good job of this. 
Um, it's a tricky question because there's good things and bad things about lots of different communities. Of course, nobody's perfect, right? Absolutely. But I think we can take a lot of inspiration from what's happening in the global South right now, in particular in Central and South America, where, um, you know, centuries of colonialism are being overthrown by indigenous leaders who are committed to communitarian, um, and social responsibility. Um, Bolivia, Peru, Chile, Argentina, you know, they're all changing and, um, despite attempts by our government and American government and others to, to stop that from happening, I think there is a real shift going on in the world of people saying, you know, we cannot, we literally cannot keep going like this. Like, aside from the fact that inequality is incredibly problematic and eventually will lead to major political problems, we have a climate crisis that is a new reality that, not new in any sense, it's been around for decades, but of all sorts of human societies, ours is the one facing this um, and we can't keep going this way and so there are countries um, governments that are trying to to do the work that's necessary to, to overtake that um, neoliberal mentality and and to change that around um, also I know while Cuba is taking a lot of crap these days um, it is an incredibly interesting um, society if anybody's interested in in doing some more research into Cuba they are incredible I mean we get so much negative um, propaganda about Cuba because most of the people in the U.S. are um, people who fled the the communist regime so they have a negative opinion about it but um, it's actually fascinating I mean they have the best medical system they were sending people around the world to help with COVID Um, they have a great education system Um, they may not be able to access the consumer products that we have but they have access to those basic necessities that we were talking about before that really allow people to 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 fulfill their their potential Um, and so I think what's important is to look around the world with a a critical gaze um, and and try and think through some of the the propaganda we might be getting through our newspapers because um, you know in Canada especially we we have this myth of us being this great nation on a global scale that we're peacekeepers and we we do all these good things but in fact Canadian mining interests are dominating the South and Central American um, economies. Um, we do some really terrible things around the world, and so our news is very much influenced by that. Um, and so, when you read stories about Cuba or about uh, Bolivia or other places, um, just you know, keep a critical eye on that and think, you know, what are the interests at play here, and um, what are they doing that's challenging the status quo? That you know, when you challenge power, power pushes back, and it's not always pretty. And so those are the ways to, I think, to be a bit more critical about these issues. That's so cool. Thank you. I was going to ask the exact same question. Um, And I think to your point on Cuba, especially what we saw during the pandemic, when your largest export, if we're thinking of it in that kind of terminology, is doctors, perhaps you're doing something right um, at this time. So that's, that's really neat. Thank you so much. So I'm curious, you know, we're coming up to the hour here, so I want to be mindful of everyone's time, but you know, Roberta, where do you consume your media and your news and what resources do you think are great ones for people who are more interested in these topics we've talked about today to to look at or to, to read about? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question of how do we deal with this modern media landscape that we're in? And it's not easy because there's uh, only a couple of companies that own most of our news media. And so I try and um, focus on more independent media sources. Um, The Breach, The Sprawl in Calgary, for instance, Passage are some good Canadian ones. Um, I'm, you know, a big fan of of, um, international news like The Guardian is usually a fairly reliable source. Um, the intercept in the U S is a good kind of left wing, um, source in the, in a sort of real economic, um, 
you know, well-researched sort of sort of way. Um, but I think it is also useful to read the mainstream news. I mean, I most of my news is my Twitter feed where I see headlines all the time. And um, it is important to know how these issues are being framed around the world. Um, and so I, I just, I'm kind of a news junkie. So I guess that's part of it is just consuming everything. Um, and I want to recommend, um, there's a, two really good books I think people should read if they're interested in these issues. One, is by Judy Rebick. It's called 10,000 Roses. Um, and it's a really good history of the kind of white women's movement of the, the period we were talking about. But she does grapple with a lot of those issues around the exclusivity that's in there. Um, and then Nora Loretto has a new book. You may have read it or not. Um, it's called Take Back the Fight. Um, and it's a really good book about the history of the National um, Action Committee on the Status of Women um, and um, sort of the, the decline of the women's movement and where we can go from here um, in terms of organizing. And so if people are looking for, for more resources, those are some good ideas to start with. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing those. Tara, did you have any other things you wanted to ask or bring up? I think, I think I'm good. I think this has definitely helped with my rage. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, if, I think we do have a pink tax rebate in there um, from what Roberta has given us in terms of, you know, how to interact with these kind of movements, things to think about, things to engage with as well, so we can keep um, progressing forward and not having to have the same conversation every two decades. So I'm... I'm great. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you so much. I'm so glad to, to talk about this stuff. As I said, nobody ever wants to talk about reproductive justice. So it makes me so happy to talk about it. Um, I'm just thrilled that you invited me. It's great. Awesome. So where can people find you, Roberta, if they want to learn more about you and what you're up to and what you're writing and researching? Where can they find you? Sure. So I have a website. It's just robertalexier.ca um, or I'm on Twitter at rlexier, R-L-E-X-I-E-R. -E awesome. Well, thanks again for being on the show today. I think this was an amazing conversation. I think we all learned a lot and hopefully both Tara and my rage will be channeled into more productive avenues. I look forward to learning how because I'm just a ball <laughs> of rage these days. So let's all channel our rage to social change. <laughs> Absolutely. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Pink Tax Podcast is recorded in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Our music is provided by Margot. You can find her work at noisebymargot.com. Sound editing by Peter Dobson. If you'd like to support the Pink Tax Podcast, you can make a donation at liberapay.com slash pinktaxpodcast and submit a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.